إن الحمد لله نحمده ونستعينه ونستغفره ونعوذ بالله من شرور أنفسنا وسيئات أعمالنا من يهده الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلل فلا هادي له وأشهد أن لا إله إلا الله وحده لا شريك له وأشهد أن محمدا عبده ورسوله أما بعد Today's chapter then, we come on to the chapter Bab Mina Shirki Anadharu Ligayrillah. The chapter that making vows for other than the sake of Allah, then that is from Shirk. From Shirk is making vows in the name of other than Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. We briefly spoke about this last time, about the topic of vowing, because the hadith at the end of the last chapter was the hadith where the man had vowed to slaughter a camel bibuana. So, some element of the discussion regarding vows already took place, but today we'll mention it in more detail. So we'll do the reading to begin. Who wants to read? Like we said before, for those who don't have a copy of the book, if you speak Arabic, it's available, the matan of Kitab al-Tawheed, the sharh of many of the scholars. We're using the sharh of Sheikh al-Fawzan. If you don't speak Arabic in English, it's available as well, a summarized version. So the book we are doing, it is available to purchase in the bookshops. Everybody should try to get a copy so you can follow along what we are reading every week and where we are. And that will help you to study and learn better. بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم قال المصنف رحمه الله باب من الشرك بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم باب من الشرك نظر لغير الله بقوله يوفون بالنظر وقوله وما انفقتم من نفقه او نذرتم من نظر فان الله يعلم وفي الصحيح عن عائشه رضي الله عنها أن رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم قال من نذر أن يطيع الله فليطيعه ومن نذر أن يعصي الله فلا يعصي So here then الشيخ الفوزان he mentions النذر في اللغة التزام فعل الشيء The word in the Arabic language النذر then it refers to necessitating the doing of something. To necessitate and to obligate the doing of some particular action. Iltizamu fi'li shay. Wa fi shara' iltizamu mukallaf fi'la ta'atin lam tajib alayhi. بأصل الشرع 
Islamically speaking, when we talk about vows, then what we mean is that a mukallaf, meaning a person who the responsibilities of the religion are upon, and that will be the Muslim who is aqil, baligh, etc., the mukallaf, the one who is of the age of puberty, has his senses, the Muslim who has the taklif upon him. Children, for example, under the age of puberty would not be recognized as a mukallaf, or somebody who is majnoon would not be recognized as a mukallaf. So it is about the mukallaf we're talking about here, a person who the responsibilities of the sharia are upon him, he necessitates upon himself to do an act of worship which was not obligated upon him in the default of the sharia. That a person obligates upon himself to do an act of worship that was not necessitated and obligated upon him in the basis of the Sharia. Like we mentioned last time, if somebody says they vow that they will fast tomorrow, they vow they are going to fast tomorrow. Tomorrow isn't Ramadan yet, is it obligatory upon anyone to fast? Tomorrow generally it is not. But if a person vows that upon himself, now he has made it obligatory upon himself to fast that day. And there are other examples the scholars give in the books of fiqh and some of these other books of aqidah. They'll give you examples like somebody says they vow to do i'tikaf for three days in the mosque, even outside of Ramadan we're talking about. Is there any obligation upon you to do any i'tikaf in Ramadan even or outside of Ramadan? Is that an act which is obligatory in any way? Even in Ramadan it's only a sunnah, it's not an obligation for you to have to do i'tikaf. But if somebody vows, they take a vow that they are going to do three days of i'tikaf, now it's not a sunnah, it's not an option, it is now an obligation upon them to do three days of i'tikaf. So something which is not an obligation upon you in the basis of the sharia, you take a vow that you're going to do it, you have now made that obligatory upon yourself. That's what we're talking about when we talk about vows Islamically. That you obligate upon yourself that which was not obligatory upon you. And this is generally prohibited for a person to do. من إحراج الإنسان لنفسه وتحميلها شيئا قد يشق عليها. The scholars have mentioned most of them that it is makruh to make vows 
and therefore obligate upon yourself acts of worship that the Sharia has not obligated upon you. Some scholars though do take the opinion that it is actually haram to make a vow and obligate upon yourself something the Sharia did not obligate upon you. So here the Shaykh mentions and that's because you are going to put yourself into a situation of difficulty and burden that the Sharia excused you from. You are going to put yourself into a situation now where you have to do a certain act of worship that the Sharia had never obligated upon you to have to do. So it is not something befitting that a person burdens himself in this way with affairs that the Sharia did not even burden you with. وَكَانَ قَبْلَ أَنْ يَنْظُرْ فِي سَاعَةٍ مِنْ أَمْرِهِ Before that person made the vow, you were in freedom. Before the person makes the vow that he's going to do three days of i'tikaf in a masjid. Before he made that vow, next week, those three days, did he have to go to the mosque and do i'tikaf? He didn't. He was in freedom in regards to his affair. But once he's made that vow to do that worship, his freedom has been taken away on that affair. Those three days, he will have to go to the mosque now. He will have to do the i'tikaf now. He's obligated it upon himself. So you are tightening the affair upon yourself. You are making restriction upon yourself where the Sharia did not make restriction upon you. Otherwise, if you don't make a vow, then insha'a fa'ala hadhihi ta'a al-mustahabba wa insha'a lam yaf'alha falamma nadhara fi'laha lazimatuhu. So before you make any vow, you are in freedom. If you want to go and do that act of worship, which is mustahab, for example, the i'tikaf, if you choose to do it, you can go and do it. But if you decide not to do it, you have the option of not doing it. That's before you make a vow. You have that freedom the Sharia has given you in that regard. But now by making a vow to do it, you restricted the affair upon yourself and you are obligated and necessitated to do it now. That's why the scholars have mentioned it is at least makruh and some even say it's manhiyun anhu haram impermissible for you to obligate upon yourself affairs the Sharia did not obligate upon you. However, there is another side to this issue. So let's assume now we're working upon the basis that it's makruh. Many of the scholars, they say it is makruh, meaning you could still end up doing a vow, a makruh action, doesn't mean that it's haram, so a person may end up making a vow. Now there's another part of the issue. Now that you have made a vow, that's done, it's happened. You've made the vow. 
Now the discussion is about the fulfillment of the vow. Now that you've made the vow, now we're not going to say, but you shouldn't fulfill it and it wasn't something you should have done and it was makruh. Now that you've made the vow, it is obligatory upon you to fulfill that vow. Talking about the vow that is in obedience to Allah. Now the discussion isn't like it was before. Before the vow, the discussion was you shouldn't make the vow. It's not something which is suitable. You shouldn't burden yourself. That was the discussion before. Now when a person gets to the stage, they've done it. They've made the vow. Now there's no discussion about you shouldn't, this shouldn't, that. Now the discussion is straightforward. You've made a vow to obey Allah. End of story. It is now obligatory upon you to fulfill that vow. And you can think about this in categories. When a person makes a vow, they either make it for the sake of Allah or for the sake of other than Allah. When you make a vow, either you're making it for the sake of Allah or a person has made a vow for other than the sake of Allah. So two categories there. Then the person who made their vow for the sake of Allah, either he had made a vow of obedience to Allah or he had made a vow to Allah, a vow of disobedience. And then you could say the same on the other side. A person has vowed to other than Allah an act of obedience or an act of disobedience. So you end up with how many categories altogether at the bottom? Four. A person makes a vow for the sake of Allah. A person makes a vow for other than the sake of Allah. Both of those, the one who made a vow for the sake of Allah, either did so in something that is obedience to Allah, or something that is disobedience to Allah. And the other one who made a vow for other than Allah, either did so in something that is of obedience, or in something that is disobedience. Four categories. In the category that somebody made a vow for the sake of Allah, and it was a vow of obedience, the ruling on that is obligatory for him to fulfill the vow. A person made a vow for the sake of Allah, a vow of obedience, the ruling there, obligatory to fulfill that vow. A person makes a vow for the sake of Allah, but it was a vow of disobedience. The ruling on that one, haram to fulfill it. You cannot fulfill a vow where you have vowed to disobey Allah. Haram to fulfill that vow, even though you've done it for Allah, as you claim. You've made a vow for Allah to disobey. You cannot fulfill that vow. You cannot disobey Allah. So that vow is not allowed to be fulfilled. The other side, the vow that is made for other than the sake of Allah. The one that is of disobedience, then just like the other one, obviously you cannot do disobedience. No fulfillment of that. 
What about the vow that's done for other than the sake of Allah for obedience? Can it be fulfilled or does it have to be fulfilled or it cannot be fulfilled? What's the ruling on that one? Obedience, the one which is obedience though. This is now the one that the, the person made a vow for Allah to obey him. The ruling on that one, he must Fulfill it. A person made a vow for Allah to disobey him. The ruling, he cannot fulfill that. The other side, a person made a vow to other than Allah to disobey. Cannot fulfill it. Cannot do disobedience. Now the last one, a person made a vow to other than Allah, but to do obedience. Is that ruling it is to be fulfilled or it cannot be fulfilled? If you're, if you're, so you're obeying beside Allah, or with, or with Allah, depends. Obeying Allah. So you are, you an act of obedience. Yes, so you to, if you are promised somebody to do something, you follow, follow that. For example, you promise to. You vowed in uh, the name of other than that's Allah. That's shirk, that's shirk. So then, shirk. there's nothing to discuss. Yeah. On this side, there is nothing to discuss. A person has made a vow for other than Allah. It's the end of story. Shirk. You cannot fulfill those vows, even if you say it is a vow of obedience to Allah. There should be no hesitation or doubt. One person is vowing for Allah, one is vowing for other than Allah. The one who vows for other than Allah, obedience, disobedience, it's all irrelevant. None of that is going to be fulfilled. How are you going to fulfill something for the sake of other than Allah, shirk? So all of that is a big cross on that side. On this side, the one who does it for the sake of Allah, if it is a vow of obedience, the ruling is wajib to fulfill it. But if it's a vow for the sake of Allah, of disobedience, then wajib to not fulfill it, cross it. So that's the summary of the vows for the sake of Allah, not for the sake of Allah. Then we'll get into the discussion further here. As Shaykh Al-Fawzan says, إِذَا كَانَ كَذَلِكَ فَهُوَ مِنْ أَنْوَاعِ الْعِبَادَةِ If the person who makes the vow for the sake of Allah of obedience is now commanded to fulfill that vow, it indicates that it's an act of worship. If he is commanded to fulfill that vow, of obedience made to Allah, then it's an act of worship that indicates. In the Quran we have, وَالْيُوفُوا And let them fulfill their vows. And here also, يُوفُونَ بِالنَّذْرِ They fulfill their vow, indicating that the one who has ended up making a vow, for the sake of Allah of obedience, that category, it is now an act of worship for him to fulfill that vow. The one who has made it for the sake of Allah in obedience, it is an act of worship for him to fulfill it now. And that's what the Quran indicates, يُوفُونَ بِالنَّفْرِ 
that they fulfill their vows. And the other ayah here, the Shaykh quotes, nudurahum, And let them fulfill their vows. That's talking about the vows for the sake of Allah in obedience. So now the Shaykh says, if you understand that, then you understand now that fulfilling those vows is an act of worship. لِأَنَّ الْعِبَادَةِ كَمَا عَرَّفَهَا شَيْخُ الْإِسْلَامِ ابْنُ تَيْمِيَّةِ إِسْمٌ جَامِعٌ لِكُلِّ مَا يُحِبُّهُ اللَّهُ وَيَرْضَاهُ مِنَ الْأَقْوَالِ وَالْأَفْعَالِ الظَّاهِرَ وَالْبَاطِنَةِ That worship is a comprehensive term for all of that which Allah loves and is pleased with from the statements and actions apparent and hidden. All of that encompasses the acts of ibadah and worship. فَكُلُّ أَنْوَاعِ الطَّاعَاتِ الَّتِي أَمَرَ اللَّهُ بِهَا أَوْ أَمَرَ بِهَا رَسُولُهُ صَلَى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمْ وَمِنْهَا الْوَفَاءِ بِالنَّظْرِ عِبَادَةِ so all of the acts that Allah commanded you with, then without a doubt they are acts of worship. Allah's not going to command you to do something except that it is beloved to Allah and it is an act of worship. So from amongst the affairs that Allah has commanded the servants to do is to fulfill their vows. Allah's commanded us in the Qur'an, if you've made a vow, then you must fulfill it. The vow of obedience to Allah. Allah's commanded you to fulfill those vows if you've made them. And if Allah has commanded you to do that, then it means that action of fulfilling those vows of obedience to Allah is an action of worship. والشيخ رحمه الله في هذه الأبواب إنما يحكي أنواعا تقع من بعض الناس وهي من الشرك يريد أن يحذر المسلمين منها أو يحذر المسلمين منها ومن ذلك النظر لغير الله من الجن أو الأولياء والصالحين أو أصحاب القبور سيدي الشيخ سيد الشيخ الفوزان that Sheikh Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab in these chapters here, in this chapter, other chapters, is highlighting some of the types of actions people do that constitute shirk. And in this chapter, it is the action of people vowing for other than the sake of Allah. The action of the people when they vow for other than the sake of Allah, to the jinn, to the awliya as they claim, to the righteous in their graves as they claim, all of these others besides Allah, people make their vows for, then they are committing an act of shirk. How are they committing an act of shirk? This is like in the University of Medina, when we used to be sat there, the teacher would explain everything, go through all of it, and then suddenly, suddenly out of the blue, 
He would just go quiet and say, so how do you answer the question then? What? How is it shirk? And then when nobody answered, he would say, so we've understood nothing. Ma fahimna shay. Ma fahimna shay. Why is it an act of shirk to make a vow to the jinn or to the awliya or to the salihin or to the people of the qubur? Why are these acts of shirk vowing to them? Because you've taken beside Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala or... Just from what we've said, no. to keep it simple. Yeah, so you, you are... Vowing is... Vowing is an ibadah. Why is something shirk? Why is anything shirk? Because that action is an act of worship and therefore it's only supposed to be done for the sake of Allah. What is shirk? So now if somebody says, why is it shirk to make a vow to the jinn or to these other things? You simply have to prove to them that vowing is an act of worship. And if you prove that, then therefore vowing can only be done for the sake of Allah. We've already proven in those ayat, yufuna bin nadhar, that they fulfill their vows and Allah commands you, wal and let them fulfill their vows. If Allah's commanding you to do something, then it must be an act of worship. And that must therefore mean you're not allowed to do it for the jinn or the awliya or the salihin or the people of the graves. هَذَا عِبَادَ لِغَيْرِ اللَّهِ سُبْحَانَهُ وَتَعَالَى فَهُوَ شِرْكٍ وَهَذَا وَاقِعٌ فِي هَذِهِ الْأُمَّةِ بِكَثْرَةٍ مِنْ حِينَ وُجِدَتِ الْأَضْرِحَةِ وَبُنِيَتْ عَلَى الْقُبُورِ وَصَارَ كَثِيرٌ مِنَ النَّاسِ يَتَّجِهُونَ إِلَيْهَا لِأَنَّهُمْ قِيلَ لَهُمْ إِنَّ هَذِهِ الْقُبُورَ فِيهَا بَرَكَةٌ وَفِيهَا نَفْعٌ وَفِيهَا دَفْعٌ ضَرَرٌ وَإِنَّهَا مُجَرَّبَةٌ فَمَنْ نَظَرَ لِلْقَبَرِ الْفُلَانِ أَوْ لِلشَّيْخِ الْفُلَانِ فَإِنَّهُ يَحْصُلُ لَهُ مَقْصُودُهُ وَإِنْ كَانَ مَرِيضًا يُشْفَى وَإِنْ كَانَ امْرَأَةً تُرِيدُ الْحَمْلَ فَإِنَّهَا إِذَا نَظَرَتْ لِلشَّيْخِ الْفُلَانِ أَوْ لِلْقَبَرِ الْفُلَانِ تَحْمِلُ So they say to people that if you go to these shrines and you go to these tombs, it has been practiced and experienced. Go and vow to this great sheikh in this tomb somewhere. And if you are sick, you will be cured. Go and vow something to this great sheikh in that tomb. And if you're a woman, can't get pregnant, you'll get pregnant. So they tell the people, go and do these types of actions. And we've tested and tried it. And it works. Go and vow to him some action. Vow to him that if you give me pregnancy, then I vow to you, I will do X, Y, and Z. And you'll get it, you'll become pregnant. So the shaykh says, these kinds of things, they exist in great amounts in the ummah. Many places in the world, they believe in these types of things. Go to the grave of such and such, vow to him. You'll fast a week for him. And if you do that, he will give you the pregnancy. He will take away your disease. This is something widespread. وَقَدْ يَفْعَلُونَ هَذَا وَيَحْصُلُ لَهُمْ مَقْصُودُهُمْ اِبْتِلَاءً وَامْتِحَانًا مِنَ اللَّهِ And sometimes, like we said before, istidraj. They go and they vow to these people, and maybe a woman has been trying for 15 years, cannot get pregnant. And so she goes and vows to this wali, as they say, vows to him, I will fast a whole week for you if you allow me to become pregnant. 
And she goes and does the week because suddenly after making that vow, she becomes pregnant. Or another person is ill with a disease that won't go from him. He goes and vows to that person in the grave and the disease goes. This is not because what they are claiming occurs is occurring. Rather it is a further test and trial from Allah upon them. A further test and trial from Allah upon them. And we'll get to the chapter later on when Shaykh al-Islam ibn Taymiyyah mentioned the people who used to call upon the dead in the graves. The dead used to rise up out of the graves and talk to them. And so the mushrikun would say, look, we go to the graves of the awliya, we see the awliya coming out. We'll get to that chapter later. So here now, the shaykh, he mentions, وَالنَّظَرْ عَلَىٰ قِسْمَيْنِ This is what we briefly mentioned already in the background, that vowing is two types. Either it is going to be a vow of obedience, or it is going to be a vow of disobedience. So an, a vow of obedience, for example, somebody vows to Allah. We're talking about vowing to Allah at the moment. Somebody vows to Allah that they will do i'tikaf in al-masjid al-haram. Or somebody vows that they will go and pray in al-masjid al-haram. Or in al-masjid al-aqsa, al-masjid al-nabawi. Or other than that, they vow that they will go and pray in those three mosques, for example, that they will travel to them. Is there an obligation to go to Al-Aqsa, to go to Al-Masjid Al-Nabawi? There is no obligation, but a person makes it a vow upon himself to go and do that. Doing that is an act of worship and obedience, to go and pray. In Al-Masjid Al-Haram, Al-Masjid Al-Nabawi, Al-Masjid Al-Aqsa. So a person vows these types of things, they are vows of obedience. وَهُوَ فِي الْأَصْلِ غَيْرُ وَاجِبِ But originally those actions were not obligatory upon the person. But when he vowed them, they then became obligatory upon them. وَالدُّخُولِ فِي النَّظْرِ إِبْتِدَاءً like we said, entering into a vow from the beginning, entering into a vow, is that sunnah, is that recommended or not recommended? Not recommended. Entering yourself into a vow is not recommended. And there's a narration the Shaykh quotes, لا تنظروا do not vow. The vow does not bring goodness. It is only to extract some worship out of a miserly one. Somebody who is miserly, bakhil, doesn't do much worship. So he bows upon himself and forces himself burdens himself, it is like you are extracting this out of a miserly person. That he wouldn't do the worship otherwise, it is extracting it out of him by force. So the messenger said, it is not good. It is only to extract something out of a miserly one. 
في أمور الطاعة غير الواجبة إن شاء فعلها وله أجر وإن شاء تركها ولا حرج عليه والله لا يحب لنا أن نكلف أنفسنا شيئا لم يجبه علينا And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala does not love that we burden ourselves with affairs that are not obligatory upon us. يريد الله بكم اليسر ولا يريد بكم العسر Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wants for you ease and does not want for you difficulty. وَإِدْخَالُ الْإِنسَانِ نَفْسَهُ فِي نَظْرِ غير واجب عليه في الأصل قد يعجز وقد يشق عليه A person when he enters himself into a vow of obedience to Allah has now burdened himself with something which he in the end may not be able to even do. He has burdened himself and obligated himself with something that in the end he may not even be able to do. وَعَلَى هَذَا تُنَزَّلُ الْأَدِلَّةِ الَّتِي تَمْدَحْ الَّذِينَ يُوفُونَ بِالنَّظْرِ So it is in this regard that the ayat which praise those who fulfill their vows, it is in this context. The context of saying that it is not encouraged for you to make the vows to start with, but if you have ended up making a vow for the sake of Allah of obedience, then all these ayat praising those who fulfill their vows are applicable in that scenario there. Where somebody has ended up making the vow now, so now that they are in that situation, it is praiseworthy for them to now fulfill their vow. And obviously, if they made a vow to Allah to do some obedience and didn't fulfill it, would that be praiseworthy? Of course not. So in that context, these ayat praising those who fulfill their vows are to be understood. They are not to be understood in thinking we should therefore make vows. We should all make vows regularly and then fulfill them because these ayat are praising us for, for, for fulfilling them it's not like that. The original state is that it's not obligatory upon you to do these acts of worship. So don't make it obligatory upon yourself. If you do and you are in that situation now, now it is applicable that it's praiseworthy for you to fulfill it. So then, as Shaykh Al-Fawzan says, لَيْسَ مَدْحًا لِلْدُّخُولِ فِي النَّغْرِ the ayat which praise the people who fulfill their vows is not a praise of them having entered into the vow. It's not a praise of them having entered into the vow. It is a praise of them now exiting from that vow by fulfilling it. It's not a praise of entering into the vow it's a praise of fulfilling it and exiting from it. So that's to highlight so that the person doesn't think these ayat are praising the people who fulfill vows. So we should make a vow every day. Vow that you're going to do some worship tomorrow, then do it. And you'll be praised in these ayat. And then vow the next day to do something and then fulfill it. 
and you'll be praised by these ayat. It is not the case that the ayat are praising the people who enter into vows. It is simply those who have ended up there, they are praised for then fulfilling them. So that's all background regarding the vowing and the first ayah where the sheikh mentioned yufuna bin nadr that they fulfill their vow it's talking about the context of the one who shouldn't have made a vow it's not encouraged but did so for the sake of allah in a vow of obedience and then yufuna bin nadr they then fulfill their vows it's an act of worship to do so, and it's praiseworthy for them to do so. Then in the second ayah, وَمَا أَنْفَقْتُمْ مِنْ نَفَقَةٍ أَوْ نَذَرْتُمْ مِنْ نَذْرٍ فَإِنَّ اللَّهَ يَعْلَمُهُ That which you give from your spending, or that which you vow, then indeed Allah is aware of it. And what does it mean that Allah is aware of what you spend or give in charity? And that Allah is aware of what you have vowed? And again, this is in the context of a vow that you've made for Allah in obedience. That Allah is aware of these vows you've made and Allah is aware of the money you've spent in goodness and in charity for the sake of Allah. The fact that Allah is telling us He is aware of those affairs, then this necessitates the reward of Allah for you. That Allah is telling you He's aware of what you've done in your charity or in terms of the vows that you are fulfilling that you've made, then there is a reward for you upon that. لَازِمُ ذَلِكَ أَنْ يُجَازِيَكُمْ عَلَيْهِ وَهَذَا مِنْ بَابِ الْحَثِ and this is the same as before. It is therefore an encouragement to not make the vows, but if you've made them, to fulfill them. The vow to Allah upon obedience. How is this ayah an evidence for that? The Shaykh highlights a couple of points. The first point is that the act of vowing or the fulfillment of the vow of obedience to Allah is associated alongside spending for the sake of Allah. Spending your wealth for the sake of Allah in charity, in other affairs, that is an act of worship you will be rewarded for. Fulfilling your vows has been mentioned alongside that, indicating that the situation regarding fulfilling vows is the same as the situation in giving your money for the sake of Allah. You'll be rewarded for that one. You'll be rewarded for this one. You'll be rewarded for fulfilling your vows that you've ended up making just as you would be rewarded for giving in charity for the sake of Allah. The fact that both of them are mentioned together indicates they are both actions of Worship, the fulfillment of vows, and the giving and the spending of your money for the sake of Allah, and that you'll be rewarded on both of those.
Then the third evidence that is mentioned here. وَفِي الصَّحِيحِ عَنْ عَائِشَ رَضِيَ اللَّهُ عَنْهَا أَنَّ رَسُولَ اللَّهِ صَلَّى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمَ قَالْ So this hadith now in الصَّحِيح he mentions Is that Al-Bukhari a Muslim? Al-Bukhari عَنْ عَائِشَ رَضِيَ اللَّهُ عَنْهَا Aisha Ummul Mu'minina bint Abi Bakr as-Siddiq the daughter of Abu Bakr as-Siddiq radiyallahu anhuma and she was also from amongst the highest narrators of hadith min al-mukthirin as they say from the companions who narrated one of the most number of ahadith from the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And there is a discussion regarding who was better. Is it Khadija radiyallahu anha? Or is it Aisha radiyallahu anha? Which of the two wives of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam is better? They have different qualities. And you cannot compare both. You cannot compare both. You don't have a fault. So who's better then? You cannot compare them. So none of them is better? No, no, you can't say both. They have different qualities. But if I ask you who's better, what are you going to say? You say Khalidji, she was the one who provided in wealth and so on, and comfort. So you cannot say, but I say Jing, that's her quality. So you're not going to give me an answer. Anybody else? Khadija or Aisha radiallahu anhumah? Khadija. Why? Because she's the first one who believes in prophets. Uh-huh, so, she's, she's the first one who support him. So Khadija, the first woman to believe in the Prophet, وسلم, his first wife, he never married. Yeah. Anybody else, when he was married with Khadija, anha, she's the mother of all of his children except Ibrahim, Maria al Qibtiyah. There's many things about Khadija, anha, when the revelation began. She was the one who supported the messenger in those early days. There's a lot regarding Khadija radiallahu anha. But then Aisha radiallahu anha, she narrated over a thousand hadith. The sunnah came to us from these companions, Aisha radiallahu anha min al-mukthirina fi riwayah Over a thousand narrations she narrated of the sunnah of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi And that's why... Uh, Ibn al-Qayyim or Ibn Taymiyyah either Ibn al-Qayyim I think narrating from Ibn Taymiyyah he said that it is a case of a comparison that can't really be made because there are two different situations the role of Khadija and the virtues of Khadija were at the beginning of Islam the role of Aisha and the virtues of Aisha were at the end of Islam. So you're comparing two different time zones within the revelation of Islam and the history of Islam, two different eras, two different women from two different sides of the revelation. Khadija at the beginning, Aisha at the end. So the comparison isn't a straight comparison. It's not like they both lived at the same time exactly, and then you can compare them both. What did she do? What did she do? One was in a different scenario altogether to the other. So the virtues of Khadija, as we already mentioned, and the virtues of Aisha were that she memorized the sunnah 
and she reported and relayed the sunnah, so many narrations, over a thousand narrations. Some of the men from the companions, they used to come to Aisha radiallahu anha to get fatwa. Some of the men from the companions, they used to come to Aisha radiallahu anha for fatwa. So Ibn Qayyim, he mentioned, it's not a direct comparison. The virtues of Khadija are at the beginning of Islam, the virtues of Aisha are at the end of Islam. And that's why he mentioned that perhaps from the wisdoms that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala decreed Aisha radiallahu anha to marry the messenger when she was young, because at that young age, how old was she when the messenger died? Not even 20. So at that young age, we know it's well known that at the younger age you are able to memorize and understand the affairs and keep them in your mind and brain and memorize better than someone in their older age. So maybe from the wisdom, the scholars, they say that Allah decreed her to be with the messenger from that young age and she memorized so much of the sunnah, especially the affairs of privacy. The affairs of privacy that the Prophet ﷺ did within the home and rulings regarding women, all these types of affairs, Aisha radiallahu anha, learnt them from the messenger, his wife, and then she narrated them to all of the other women and to the other people, rulings that the general people would not have seen, because they were affairs that occurred within the home of the messenger, and he explained and taught them to Aisha radiallahu anha, affairs that would not be as accessible publicly, so the scholars have mentioned her role was a different type of role to Khadija. Khadija's role, radiallahu anha, was to support the messenger at the beginning. Aisha, radiallahu anha, her role was more about the preservation of the sunnah at the end of the revelation. So it's not a direct comparison where you can say Khadija is better, or you can say Aisha is better. Rather, they have their independent virtues. Then the next one it mentions Man Nadara an Yuti Allah Fal Yutihu Waman Nadara an Yasi Allah Fala Yasihi that whomsoever vows to obey Allah vowing for Allah in obedience Fal Yutihu then he must obey Allah, fulfill the vow. وَمَن نَذَرَ أَنْ يَعْصِ اللَّهِ فَلَا يَعْصِهِ And whomsoever vows to Allah to disobey, then let him not disobey. Don't say, but I made the vow, now I have to go do that haram. Of course not. Your vow cannot be fulfilled in that case. So here, Shaykh Al-Fawzani says, الحديث صريح في أن النذ يكون طاعة وإذا كان طاعة فهو عبادة وإذا كان عبادة فصرفه لغير الله شرك أكبر That line summarizes the whole chapter That this hadith is explicit, clear That vowing can be an act of worship من نظر أن يطيع الله 
clear whomsoever vows to obey Allah. So vowing has within it obedience to Allah. And if that is the case, then it's an act of worship. And if that's the case, we know that acts of worship cannot be done for other than the sake of Allah. And it would be major shirk to do this act of worship for other than the sake of Allah. So man nadhara an Allah, whomsoever vows to obey Allah, makes a vow to do some prayer or some fasting or hajj or umrah or charity or itikaf, anybody who makes a vow of some type of obedience, then he must obey Allah and fulfill that vow. That we spoke about. A vow for the sake of Allah in obedience, the ruling is you must fulfill it. But the second type, مَن نَذَرَ أَنْ يَعْصِ اللَّهَ فَلَا يَعْصِ Whomsoever vows to disobey Allah, vows that he is going to cut the ties of kinship, for example, that he is going to cut the ties with his father, vows that he's going to cut the ties with his mother, vows that he's going to cut the ties with his brother, vows of disobedience, then it is impermissible. هَذَا نَذَرْ لَا يَجُوزُ لَهُ بِهِ Or a person makes a vow that he's going to kill someone. Haram, impermissible. فَهَذَا لَا يَجُوزُ بِهِ لِأَنَّهُ It is not permissible to fulfill these kinds of vows because they are disobedience and sinning. A vow that a person makes, he's going to abandon the prayer. A vow that he makes, he's going to drink alcohol. All of these are vows of disobedience and it is impermissible to fulfill them. Regardless of whether your vow is to abandon an obligatory act, like a person vows to stop praying, it is a vow to abandon an obligation. That's a sin. Or a vow to do something haram, those vows cannot be fulfilled. Then the only one left was the other side, the vows that are for other than the sake of Allah, then they certainly cannot be fulfilled. Let's imagine you didn't have any evidence for it. Let's imagine just on the principles. Principally speaking, we've said a vow is for Allah other than Allah. The one that is for Allah, if it's obedience, you must fulfill. If it's disobedience to Allah, you cannot fulfill. Just based upon that, how do we know a vow for other than the sake of Allah cannot be fulfilled. Because if a vow to Allah of disobedience is not allowed to be fulfilled, then what therefore of a vow to other than Allah, even more so it is impermissible to fulfill it. Even more so it is impermissible to fulfill it. وَمِن ذَلِكَ بَلْ أَوْلَى إِذَا نَظَرَ لِلْقُبُورِ لِأَنَّ النَّظْرِ لِلْقُبُورِ شِرْكِ وَهُوَ مِنْ أَعْظِمِ الْمَعَاصِي فَلَا يَجُوزُ لَهُ الْوَفَاءِ So those types of vows for the graves, for the jinn, for Badawi, for others that they make them for, then they are clearly vows of sinning and disobedience, in fact shirk, and they cannot be fulfilled. It is a consensus, consensus of the scholars. You cannot fulfill a vow of disobedience. 
consensus of the scholars, you cannot fulfill a vow of disobedience. But what must you do? You've made a vow. If it's a vow to other than Allah, it's clear what you must do. You must repent, seek forgiveness from the shirk that you fell into, etc. Even if it's a vow for the sake of Allah of disobedience, you must repent from it. You must repent from all of those vows. The vow to Allah of disobedience, repent from that. The vow to other than Allah, obviously you must repent from that. It is shirk that you fell into. But the only issue that remains outstanding is if you don't fulfill it, then do you have to give the expiation? Do you have to give the expiation, the kafarah? Firstly, what is the kafara for the vowing? Feeding ten poor people or clothing them or, or fasting. Before you get to the fasting though, feeding ten people, clothing them or freeing a slave. And then, if not, then it comes to the fasting. The evidence? The evidence? You know it? Then tell us. So then you don't know it. No, I know the wording, but I cannot exactly, you know? Is it in Al Ma'idah? Al Ma'idah, what is it? Can I open it? Can I use it for Quran? Huh? Give me one. Anyone know the evidence? No, no, no. Give me, give me one. I just read it in the way to to the lessons of how. What is it? Kafaratuhu Kitamu Asharati Masakina O Min Ausati Matimun Ahalikum O Kiswatuhum O Tahrir Rakaba And then Faman Faman Lam Yastati Faman Lam Yastati Faman Lam Yajit Fasiyamu Thalafati Ayam Maida what number? Eighty-nine, Surah Al-Ma'idah number eighty-nine. Al-Ma'idah eighty-nine gives you the order of the kafara. So here the Sheikh says, "Ikhtalafu hal tajibu alayhi kafarat yamin aw la tajib." Min al-ulama man ra'a annahu tajibu alayhi kafarat yamin badal al-nazar. Wa minhum man yara annahu la yajibu alayhi kafarat yamin. نظرا لأن نظر المعصية غير منعقد أصلا فليس فيه كفارة يمين لأن النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم في هذا الحديث نهى عن فعله ولم يأمر بالكفارة One of the evidences the scholars use the ones who say there is no kafara if you make a vow of disobedience They say there's no kafara Repent but there's no expiation One of the reasons is this hadith that we've just read, مَنْ نَذَرَ أَنْ يُطِيعَ اللَّهِ فَلْيُطِعْهُ وَمَنْ نَذَرَ أَنْ يَعْصِيَ اللَّهِ فَلَا يَعْصِيهِ Whomsoever vows to obey Allah, obey him. Whomsoever vows not to obey Allah, to disobey, then do not disobey him. Do not fulfill that. Does it say, and give the expiation? The Prophet ﷺ did not clarify in this narration 
that the one who makes a vow of disobedience cannot fulfill it. He clarified that. Cannot fulfill it. But didn't say anything on top and that he must also give the kafara. And they say in the principles of Usul al-Fiqh, تأخير البيان عن وقت الحاجة لا يجوز. They say when somebody comes to you asking you about the rulings of a particular issue, you have to clarify the rulings to him and you cannot leave out any essential information for his answer. Imagine somebody comes to you now and they say, I'm brand new to Islam, just, just became Muslim. Can you tell me how to pray? If you explain to them the details of how to pray, you break it all down. But you don't even tell them that you have to first make wudu. If you didn't even tell them that, then your answer wouldn't really be good for them. They would then go and start from Allahu Akbar and do everything you told them. You didn't even tell them they have to make wudu first. So when somebody comes asking about an affair, you have to give them the details that will fully explain that affair to the level that they can then practice that affair, whatever it is, properly. This is the same evidence the scholars use about taraweeh. Is it only 8 or with the witr, etc., 11, 13? Or can you go more than that? They say when the man came to the Prophet wasallam, asking him, how do I pray the night prayer? The Prophet ﷺ said to him, Mathna, Mathna, in twos. The night prayer, you pray two raka'at, give salam, stand up, pray another two raka'at, give salam, stand up, another two raka'at, give salam, in twos. Did the messenger say to him, up to eight only? He just left it open, meaning that man could have gone home and prayed twos for 40 raka'at, 60 raka'at. Could he have? The messenger never said to him, twos, but only up to X, Y, Z number. So the scholars, they say, this is a proof that it's not restricted. If it was restricted, when that man came asking, the messenger would have told him there and then explicitly, it's only this number. It's like if somebody comes and asks you about how to pray dhuhr. You're not going to explain everything to them, but forget to tell them that it's four raka'at. So they say, when, when, a, when an issue is being explained, you cannot leave out details regarding the fulfillment of that issue. Here the scholars say, the messenger is telling us about the issue of a vow of disobedience. And he has told us, you cannot fulfill it. But he didn't tell us, you have to give a kafara for it. If that was part of the fulfillment of a person who's made a vow of disobedience, that he cannot do it, he must repent, and he must give the kafara. That detail would not have been left out of this hadith. That's what they say. The detail could not possibly have been left out of the hadith if it was an obligation to give the kafara for the vow of sinning. So they say the fact that it wasn't mentioned, that the messenger didn't specify it, must mean that it's not an obligation to give a kafara with a vow of sinning. But of course, the scholars who hold the view that you must give the kafara, they will simply say, very simply say, 
There are other narrations. There are other narrations where the kafara is mentioned. And so they'll say, join all of the narrations together. This one just says you cannot fulfill the vow of disobedience. But we have another one right here that says you must give a kafara. Put them all together. The sunnah is all together. So there is a kafara, they will say. So you have a difference regarding that on the issue of the kafara. Aisha radiallahu anha, it's mentioned her opinion was that you must give the kafara. And there is another hadith which mentions la wafa fi nadar fi ma'asiyatillah wa kafaratuhu kafaratu yameen. There is no fulfillment of a vow in disobedience to Allah. And its expiation though is the normal expiation, kafaratu yameen. So they say that's an authentic addition in that narration. And if it is, then that's a clear evidence that you must give the kafara. But the others, they say the ruling of bara'atul dhimma. That the Prophet didn't mention anything about kafara here. If it was an obligation, that detail would not have been left out. So you have a difference on that issue there. That brings us to the end of the chapter regarding vowing. Next time, insha'Allah ta'ala, we'll begin with the next one, which is the chapter regarding seeking protection and refuge, al-isti'adha. Like when you say, A'udhu billahi min shaytanir rajim. A'udhu billah, al-isti'adha. I seek refuge in Allah, protection in Allah from the shaytan, etc. Seeking protection, seeking refuge. That's the issue we'll discuss next time. And we'll get to that narration about the jinn and the men who used to seek the refuge in them. That will not be next Saturday though. Next Saturday is cancelled. There's the one day event in Cardiff next Saturday. So I will be there. I will not be able to do the class here next Saturday. And the Saturday after that, Allahu Alam, all depends on what's uh, happening with the moon sighting. It is possible that the Saturday after that, Saturday in two weeks from now, could be the first day of Ramadan. And if it's the first day of Ramadan, Maghrib after the clock's change is going to be seven, between 7.30 and 8 o'clock. So it's impossible to do the lesson. So this potentially could be the last one before, uh, until after Ramadan. Potentially could be the last lesson now until after Ramadan. Next week definitely off. The week after that we'll just see if Ramadan has come in or not. If it has, then that's it. It will be after Ramadan when we resume. So inshallah ta'ala, that's when we'll meet again to continue with this book and carry on with it. So we'll conclude upon that for today. Anything to add? That's a sin. To vow to hate one of your relatives. It's incorrect. How can that possibly be considered as a ta'a? Unless a person is talking about a mubtadi or something, but even then, why do you need to make a vow to hate a mubtadi or something? No, generally it's a sin then. Generally just vowing to hate a Muslim brother is a sin. I don't understand what you're saying. Vowing to hate a Muslim brother 
can that be, how is that going to be obedience? Just generally vowing to hate someone. Something happened, some little issue happened between you, you're going to vow to hate him. That's yeah. incorrect. You know, obligatory. Sorry, before everyone, you're going to come? No, no, I'm oh. finishing this thing. But the, the brothers are still outside. Oh, they're doing, you need to mention anything now? Just let them know that the brothers are outside. Uh, you're aware of the project in London, Markaz Abdullah ibn Mubarak. They are collecting to make a new masjid there, a new markaz there. So outside today, now there are some brothers collecting for that cause. As you leave, then make sure you try to give whatever you're able to give for the sake of Allah. To build a masjid, it is sadaqa jariyah. Even after your death, it will continue. Like we were mentioning to brothers the other day. Here, this markaz, 20, 30 years ago, it wasn't by the help of anybody outside. It was the brothers, the community, they came together and slowly the masjid built until what you see here today now. Now you see these classes going on and the people coming and benefiting, establishing the lessons, establishing teaching, establishing and learning the Quran and the Sunnah, establishing prayer, all of this via the help of the community after the virtue and blessing of Allah upon us. So just like this was granted and blessed to you, then inshallah ta'ala we aid our brothers and sisters across other places that they may be blessed and they may be established for them a markaz and a masjid where sunnah is taught and propagated. So aid your brothers as you exit as much as you are able. Charity does not decrease from your wealth, it increases it. Yeah, Somebody is saying, saying oh. in, uh, in the sake of obligatory uh, paying a man, man to woman, is obligatory to pay a man for example, or is not a mosque in Islam? The mahar must be done. It's a bigger then, yeah? Must be done. Yes, mm. With respect to vowing, uh, what's the, are, are there any specific words that make it count as a vow? Not specifically, because the reality is everything, your acts of worship, the basis of them comes down to your intent. You now say something, and your intention is that I'm making a vow. It may not necessarily be the English words, I vow to do X, Y, and Z. But it may be other words equivalent to that with your intention of making the vow upon it. So there's no like exact word that they say, if you do that, then it's a vow. It's not like talaq. With divorce, they talk about specific types of words and phrases. Here it's a bit more open. There's no specific words and phrases as such. But it's obvious, most of the time, a vow... In English, there's not many words. You make a vow to do something. You take an oath upon doing something. Those are the kinds of things that would indicate you're vowing to do a particular act of worship. Swearing by someone, that's slightly different. And there's a chapter on that we're going to do later on as well. Al-Halif bi-ghayrillah. Swearing by other than Allah. We, we are going to do that later, inshallah. When somebody says, he swears by, he, he swears on his mother's grave. Or he swears on his children's lives. That he's going to do X, Y, and Z. It's impermissible. And it's from the forms or the categories of shirk that comes into. Making the halif. Allah. He mentions in the hadith, we'll come to it all. Man kana halifan falyahlif billah. Whoever is going to take uh, an oath, maybe you call that, then take it in the name of Allah. And you do not take it in the name of mother's life or children's lives or father's grave. Uh, all these kinds of statements are incorrect, impermissible, and they fall into the categories of shirk.
So a person should be careful with that type of speech on the streets. People all the time vow on my mother's grave, on my father's grave, on my children's lives. This is false, incorrect to do this. Because when you vow on their lives and your father's grave and all these things, it indicates your magnification of them. Why do you vow by someone uh, or take an oath by someone? Why do you take an oath by someone? Why say he takes an oath upon his children's lives? Because of the value of his children's lives to him. Why take an oath on his mother's grave? Because of the value of his mother to him. And the scholars have mentioned that if you take that level of value upon them, it is as though you are giving them a level of value or a level of status that is only for Allah. Taking an oath in their names, raising them and magnifying them to that level. But there's a chapter, we'll come to that inshallah. Got a question about ghusl. You know, for like brothers that have longer hair, does all the hair have to be wet or just the roots? How can you possibly uh, wet the roots of the hair only and not the rest of it? You mean you're gonna hold the rest of it back or something and only put no, water onto the skull? What I, mean, like, I could stand under the shower, yeah, and everything gets wet, or I have wet hands and I like go to the roots. You have to go in? Yeah, but that's yeah. different to like getting drenched no in the ghusl so the roots of the hairs have to be yeah. wet you have to get the fingers into all of your hair yeah. to wet it but it's it's a type of question where how much of your hair is really going to remain dry when you have to do that There's a, i'm not sure how far the no, I can speak from experience. I used to have head down to here. <laughs> Same as yours. So when you're going to... In reality. In reality. So when you have to wash it, then when you get your fingers and everything and you get the water under the shower, you're stood there and you're getting it all done, how much are you going to save? There's nothing left to save. So you wash it all. You make your whistle, you wash all of your hair. There's barely anything to even think about. Okay, maybe I can save myself a few minutes with that bit there. Wash it all, make your full whistle. There's hardly anything there to save. Mm. Can I just ask you about the... Wait, somebody else, you've had one. Go ahead. <laughs> is it permissible to make a vow as otherworldly affairs and after the vow is done, is it obligatory to fulfill Otherworldly affairs, like what? Overworldly affairs. Oh, oh, overworldly affairs. To make a vow on a worldly affair, and then what? And uh, is it obligatory to fulfill it? Yeah, because if a worldly affair is generally something of goodness, of obedience, it's not haram, then you have to fulfill it. If you say that, you know, you vow to whatever it might be, some action that you're going to do. But if you take a vow in the name of Allah to do something, and it's not haram, it's not any type of impermissible action, it's a general type of good action, then uh, you have to fulfill those. And this is the thing that a person shouldn't belittle vowing. You shouldn't be vowing on worldly affairs in the first place. It's a belittlement of vowing. That you vow in the name of Allah... If uh, uh, Allah gives you such and such, you're going to do some worldly matter. It doesn't even, it belittles the concept of vowing. That's not how a vow works. Your vowing is supposed to be that you do some action of worship to Allah if Allah gives you X, Y, and Z. So that type of thing is a belittlement of the vow in the first place. It should not be done in that way. Um, in the narration of the Prophet said, don't vow as it draws out the miserliness. Is that not a clear prohibition to not vow? No, because uh, when you have a prohibition, like in the hadith there, in one narration, the Prophet said, don't bow. The asal of a prohibition of a nahi in usul al-fiqh is 
At-tahrib, impermissibility. So that narration, if we saw it by itself, do not vow. It's a nahiya, prohibition equals in usul al-fiqh, haram. It's haram to vow. Unless you find other evidences that would therefore downgrade the haramness to makruh level. Do we have other evidences that downgrade and therefore we can understand it's not an outright prohibition, but makruh, definitely. The fact that Allah is commanding us to fulfill the vows and the fact that the Quran is telling us, appraising those who fulfill their vows, it must mean that people do end up making these vows and that it's an act of worship to fulfill them. So we can't say initially it's absolutely haram, but then say it's praiseworthy what comes after that haram. So therefore, that's why a lot of scholars, they say it's makruh. Makruh to make the vows, and therefore these narrations and these ayat and the praise are easy to understand along with that. What about the comment in the West, for example, promising and things like that? Does that fall into anything like this? No, promising isn't. Uh, promising, it's from the other uh, parts of the religion. It's from the uh, uh, attributes of the hypocrites that they make promises and they break their promises. So that's a generality in other things as well. You shouldn't be making promises and not holding those promises, breaking promises from the attributes of the hypocrites. For the kafara and feeding the masakeen, can, for example, I send the money for the kafara to my country, transfer it to my country? It's possible, but the scholars, they say, with the sha'air or generally with the rulings of the religion, that they should be seen and implemented and uh, witnessed and practiced where you are. So if now we started in this country implementing all of these kinds of rulings elsewhere, every time the kafara occurs, we do it in a, a country abroad. Every time Eid al-Adha comes, we sacrifice abroad somewhere. Every time aqiqah, somebody's born, we do it abroad somewhere. Then all of those Islamic practices from this country will disappear. Nobody sees them and nobody experiences them and nobody practices them. That's why the scholars say the asal is you do it where you are. Do it where you are, even though you cannot say it's impermissible to do it elsewhere. But the asal is you do it where you are, and Islam is uh, uh, apparent where you are then. Last one then. And the Sheikh, I was asked recently how authentic it is, yeah, for men wearing like a full suit of red, like a, a red shirt, a red pants, and then the same applied to you, yeah, and you're wearing a thobe, a fully red. The fully red thing, uh, somebody asked about that a few weeks back as well. There is a very strong opinion of some of the scholars that it is impermissible to wear full red, where there is no other color in it, no other patterns in it, just plain red. It's a very strong opinion of many of the scholars that it's impermissible to wear plain red for the men. There are hadith. You can look now in here. You'll find it in the in Kitab al-Libas. Go to any Kitab al-Libas in Sunnah Tirmidhi, Bidawud, Maja, anywhere. You'll find the hadith about the saffron and the red and the garments like that. But there's ikhtilaf amongst the scholars. But the strongest opinion is it is impermissible to wear plain red. For the men. For the men, yes, mentioned there. We'll stop on that. Inshallah ta'ala, next week is off. And the week after that, you'll have to wait for the announcement depending on Ramadan, inshallah.